the smartest man in the world, the fruitcast takes you to eat you here from the salubrious confines of what can only be described as our nefarious home base and our peripatetic uh, traverses around the world. The Bar Lubitsch here in Western Hollywood. Yeah, uh, across the street from the pleasure chest in a couple of extremely dodgy Russian delis. And, uh, well, you know the situation. You know the scenario. And uh, once again, we're back here in a room filled with red and, uh, and like that. It, do the lights work from back there, Ryan, or are they behind the bar? Yeah, you want more or less? No, I want less, yeah. Okay. I don't want to see anyone tonight. <laughs> no. Uh, um, someone asked, Mary Lynn Rice Cube asked me once, she goes, why do you wear dark glasses on stage? And I said, because I don't want to fucking see the audience. And uh, I was hoping it was funnier. Uh, <laughs> apparently it came across as wildly sincere. And uh, my understanding is the reason Roy Orbison and his whole pain-drenched, um, uh, you know, uh, soprano or contralto career uh, of magnificent songs of heart-wrenching, uh, you know, ledger domain uh, wore shades on stage. It's because he simply forgot his glasses one night and he only was wearing his shades to the gig and then the gig came and he's like, shit, I forgot my regular glasses. So he wore shades the rest of his life and if you've ever seen Roy Orbison's eyes, we're very lucky that that happened because <laughs> they were strange and goggly and he wore... Giant 50s glasses that had a weird, you know, that weren't that flattering. Let's put it that way. I've had to live with the Elvis Costello, Buddy Holly thing for my entire life. Even though I bear no resemblance to Buddy Holly or Elvis Costello. If Buddy Holly was slightly Semitic, maybe. And Elvis Costello, I stopped looking like a long time ago, uh, I'd like to think. Um, first of all, he doesn't shave anymore and hasn't forever. And he wears that kind of three-day growth thing as his bag. And I just, I, to me, that's the last refuge of the middle-aged scoundrel. Um, I mean, we all have facial uh, things that we want to hide, which is why the microphone is a giant balloon below my chin tonight. <laughs> so that you don't see the vast expanse of chins that rain down upon Middle Earth. Uh, and I think that's why Elvis is doing it. I remember going, I loved him so much when I was in college and uh, uh, I saw him about a million times and uh, eight. And uh, that's a lot though, right? The first time in 19, I think I might have mentioned this before on the show. I'll just speed right through this. In any case, we went to Winterland in uh, San Francisco and to, to see him. And um, it was uh, Mink DeVille, Nick Lowe. Nick Lowe opened. We missed Nick Lowe somehow. Uh, we saw Mink DeVille. And uh, Willie DeVille, as you know, is a, a huge favorite of Jennifer's. And we'll, they all wore like pink fucking, you know, uh, they looked like they were Puerto Rican busboy rock star garage band from 1963. Just fucking giant pompadours and fucking oily hair and mustaches and fucking pink jackets. And Willie did the... Uh, I don't want to smash into the ceiling. I remember the night. I remember the day. And it was, uh, it was really good. And then uh, Elvis came on, and that was um, this year's model. So they were furious, right? They ran through every song, and then in between the songs, this one's for all the girls called this year's couple, right? And that, that was how he introduced the songs. And then at the end, I remember he went. Uh, they did the last number Lipstick Vogue, right? And they threw a light on him and shit. And he, Don't say the number of this, just a boomer, right? And so it's all dramatic and shit. And then at the end, this is not an appropriate time to cough, Ryan. Um, I'm in the middle of a very emotional teenage Elvis Costello story here. And um, I know, I feel the same way. Uh, in any case, uh, when they left, he went, Goodbye, America. And then... <laughs> They ran off. 
And I was like, wow, are they ever coming back? Which they continued to do year after year, so I saw them seven more times. And in between, what the album before Trust and Trust, he gained 50 pounds. Because I remember going to see Trust and Squeeze opened, who I never fucking whatever. I know there's probably, uh, you know, the other theme of the show, aside from pure delight delivered free to your doorstep every week, is uh, icy goodness. Uh, the other motto of the show is I'm bound to shit on something you love. And I'm sure there's a different in Tilbrook fan out there right now crying into a crocheted bowl they made in the shape of Glenn's head. And uh, I had not only did I see Squeeze I saw Different and Tilbrook without fucking Squeeze on another occasion in London where they opened for Elvis evidently their mates or some fucking nonsense and uh, I get it I mean I got it I'm good uh, I went to a million new wave shows uh, look how I look uh, finally a genre came along that I could dress for and be part of and be part of the rock and vanguard of it and not the other part that was required to stand in the back during the ACDC concert which brings me to our first gift tonight uh, young Lisa who uh, we follow on Twitter and uh, she's come all the way from um, Adelaide and um, she's brought a most thoughtful gift first of all she went to a liquor store that's right you can applaud our Antipodean friends have always been a part of the American landscape since there was shrimps on the barbie and when I was little it was Rod Laver and Lana Cantrell so that's for nobody uh, one person one person Rod Laver, nobody. Yvonne, Yvonne Gulagong. Yeah, Yvonne Gulagong. Uh, Shane, uh, what was her name? She was really hot. She was in the 1972 Olympics. She was a swimmer. Shane Gould. Uh, yeah. Oh, no, random Australians run through the entirety. And also, and I'm going to punish myself for this in the morning because I've had Australian people write me with it, and I've been aware of it, and I've talked about it on the show 52 times. When Tommy Smith and John Carlos won the gold medal for the 100 meters at the 68 Olympics, um, the second-place finisher was from Australia, and they both put on black gloves and did the black power salute, and he stood there, and he said it was the greatest moment of his sporting life, and he was castigated when he went home, and for the life of me, I can't fucking remember his name. If anyone has a phone... Uh, feel free to look it up. In any case, let's get back to Lisa's thoughtful gift. As you know, ACDC is um, like like Aerosmith or the Ramones. There's nothing, you know, they're, they're a stanchion. The world really can't exist without those guys and their uh, drug addictions and their murders and uh, the awesome nefariousness. Will you play a little Dirty Deeds done dirt cheap? Because that... Let's just take you back to the day. Uh, I'm so old that I saw Bon Scott uh, sing. And uh, he was quite dead by 1980. And uh, so that'll give you an idea of how long ago this was. And uh, he wore no shirt, jeans, tennis shoes. Oh, yeah. That has to be real loud. And, uh, and Angus uh, uh, wore the schoolboy outfit. And how he doesn't have a concussion every day of his life. Angus must get up and he's like... Answer the phone, and they're like, the, the phone's not ringing. Get, get, the, get the door. No one's out the door. I, I would do them, but all Bon Scott did was go... Not a lot of moves. Dirty deeds. Dirty 
Thank you. He also has a list of, uh, if you'll turn it down for a moment, later in the song, which we'll get to in a moment, he lists all of the things that he's going to do to your enemies, and they include, yeah, cyanide and the lethal high voltage. Only ACDC in offering you uh, a veritable buffet of uh, punishments that they'll inflict for a very low price. Dirty deeds done dirt fucking cheap. Uh, uh, you can have someone high voltage to do. Cement, cement over shoes. I can't remember how he says it. It's quite good. And then always the... I'll carry on talking during this part. Uh, anyway, Lisa brought me this wine, and as you can see, or maybe you can't see, I'll explain it to you. For those of you listening out there in Proofcast Land, this is a perfect time to open the bottle as we are about to do here. This is ACDC Shiraz. And it's from one of the finest vintages in all of New South Wales. I made that up. Uh... And it says ACDC Platinum Playlist High Voltage Dirty Deeds Dungeon uh, Let There Be Rock Power Age Highway to Hell Back in Black Yeah, it's just a list of their songs Which are awesome And it's called Platinum I, I don't know whether to drink it or not You know what I mean? Or do, or do you put it on the shelf and just fucking look at it? Right? Uh, here, turn it up a little bit And then I'll give you an idea of what'll happen During that instance I believe this is where the list of crimes comes in. Yeah. No? Concrete shoes. Neck neckties. Neckties. voltage was so important to ACDC. They were, of course, ACDC. You can, you can turn it down now. That is a cracker, isn't it? All right, fuck it. Turn it back up. They, they never get old. Thank you for that, Lisa. As you can see, it enthralled the audience here. Uh, they were quite good when I saw them. And then we left uh, before Mont Ronnie Montrose. And the night Ronnie Montrose passed away, I had to do an obituary for him on the show right here in this place. And I left before he came on at two different gigs. But I saw him at another gig. So it kind of made up for it. <clears throat> <coughs> Moving on. <laughs> Fucking turned into NPR there for a minute. <laughs> Is the show still going? Uh, Eric from New Orleans gave me this, and it's called uh, Count Basie, Warm Breeze, Count Basie and his orchestra. Uh, Count Basie is phenomenal. Today, with more than 60 years of playing behind him, he's still leading the big, best big band 
big band, best big jazz band in the world, still doing one-nighters and still playing enthusiastically. I don't know what year this record's from. It doesn't. It's on the awesome Pablo Records label. So Kanye West wasn't wrong. He is 50% as influential as Picasso and as Einstein because he had the hindsight to put this out on his label some 30, 40, 50 years ago. And uh, that's what makes uh, Pablo so awesome. Um, this is the best part. It lists the personnel of the band, which is, of course, swinging. But awesomely, at the top, it says piano, Count Basie. Like, you're going to go, really? <laughs> um, I saw him, as I've discussed on the show. We won't go into it in great detail. But uh, it, the band was furious, right? Not like Stan Kentner, you know, uh, you know Woody Herman or Maynard Ferguson. Uh, they, they didn't blast off that hard, but they really swung. And then they'd be in the middle of a thing and go, and the count with his little hat on would go, pink. And that was it. And I was like, that's awesome. There's 25 pieces up there just blasting away. And the count was like, hey. And here's another number I hope you enjoy. Put a little of April in Paris if you can find that one. And then we'll uh, get to the show here because there's so much to go through tonight. What a glorious uh, week it was. Uh, uh, oh, thank you for this. Kelly, who's a big friend of the show and has given me more memorabilia than I care to discuss. Uh, a Black Baron's uh, a baseball cap, Willie Mays's. Uh, as I discussed, the band swings furiously. <laughs> boom, boom. Um, take it down just a little bit here. Kelly gave us the Thurber Carnival here. Oh, also a picture of the of Crosley Field uh, in the early '60s. Was it Crosley, right? Yeah. A front page of a paper with a Pete Rose on it. Uh, so many, so many wonderful gifts from Kells over the years. And this is uh, the Thurber Carnival, which is a collection of James Thurber, who a noted humorist, as we used to call them when uh, we were young and in school. Uh, along with, um, it would always be humorists would be like, um, uh, uh, not Kurt Vonnegut, but. Uh, Will Rogers was a humorist for some reason and not a comedian, even though he was a comedian for a zillion years. Um, but I think you put Thurber in there with, um, I'm blanking on it now, like Perlman or someone like that. Uh, in any case, uh, E.B. White. E. White, exactly. Um, he's very droll. And uh, Walter Mitty might be something you're familiar with. There was a wonderful motion picture with Ben Stiller several years ago. <laughs> and... Um, uh, uh, the, the Danny Kay one uh, from the early 50s, late 40s, uh, Thurber hated with all of his heart. It's very funny anyway, and you'll enjoy it because it's frenetic like every Danny Kaye movie. In any case, thank you very much for that. Let's just see if it... Someone say stop and we'll fucking make this happen. Uh, there we go. Uh, as the hunt went on for Clinigan, he wasn't, he wasn't found and killed. Mr. Brule lost weight and grew extremely fidgety. He began to figure out new ways of getting to work, one requiring the use of two different ferry lines. He ate his luncheon. He wouldn't answer bells. He cried out when anyone dropped anything, and he ran into stores or banks when cruising taxi drivers shouted at him. Which story is this? Oh, the remarkable case of Mr. Brule. Fantastic. Yeah. Oh, did you? You marked one. Oh, you. look at you. All right, here we go. The Little Girl and the Wolf. One afternoon, a big wolf waited in a dark forest for a little girl to come along, carrying a basket of food to her grandmother. Finally, a little girl did come along, and she was carrying a basket of food. Are you carrying that basket to your grandmother? asked the wolf. The little girl said, yes, she was. 
So the wolf asked her where her grandmother lived, and the little girl told him, and he disappeared into the wood. When the little girl opened the door of her grandmother's house, she saw that there was somebody in bed with a nightcap and nightgown on. She'd approached no nearer than 25 feet from the bed when she saw it was not her grandmother, but the wolf. For even in a nightcap, a wolf does not look any more like your grandmother than the Metro Golden Lion looks like Calvin Coolidge. So the little girl took an automatic out of her basket and shot the wolf dead. Moral. It is not so easy to fool little girls nowadays as it used to be. Thank you very much for that. And thank you for marking that. Can we form a human chain to the bar? I started low. I know someone offered before. I won't say anything while you're gone. The show will just sit here in a dolorous haze like a wooden duck on a fucking field ready for... Nobody? All right. Then we'll go on. Uh, the show oh it should start soon and and you gave me a a, a, a what looks to be a, a, a recherche sort of a vintage looking button that is a postage stamp that says Venice for Hillary I assume that's Venice California for Hillary although Venice Italy for Hillary is quite a romantic idea I like the thought of them walking over the Rialto after having eaten some black squid ink risotto and Patting their tummocks, uh, uh, tummocks. That's what they call them in Italy. <laughs> the tomichios, and uh, lighting lighting a cigarette, and uh, you know, and, and feeding the baby while they're smoking, and uh, well, the Hillary. Eh. <laughs> Molto bene, right? Or bravissimo, you know. Uh, that's that's what I hope. Uh, thank you for that, Cal. Well, I saw you in Sacramento. And you were at some bizarre convention of white people. He's at the bar. What was it? He's at the bar. Oh, well, then that precludes that conversation. <laughs> Which is, you know what? It's all to the benefit of the show, let's be honest. And I don't mean because of Kelly. I just mean let's move on. Uh, what a week this week. Oh, so we were at uh, Politicon last week. And uh, yes, we're dealing with the fucking podcast from last week. So here's an idea. Climb off my dick. Um... <laughs> Believe me, it's, it hasn't been a fun experience for any of us here at the Proops team. And uh, the Proops ranch was in an uproar. Uh, Tony, the smallest of all of our goats, cried. And uh, our chameleon, Randy, was upset and inconsolable and wouldn't eat mealworms for two days. So it, it got pretty wild. Uh, some of the tulips wilted. Uh, uh, I, thank you, Kelly. Uh, th- very, thank you. People are applauding for Kelly's. Thank you for that. Uh, that'll be all. Um, <laughs> So we went to the Politicon, and it was in Pasadena, which is, as you know, very difficult going for the Proop Dog. I'm a sophisticated artist, and I don't like to go to places where people point at the sky. And um, <laughs> and uh, uh, the, uh, there wasn't any uh, food trucks there, which I bitched about on the last episode, but you didn't get to hear it because it hasn't come out, really. It, it came out, but in sort of like Soviet Union radio form from like the 30s or whatever. <laughs> um, Radio Free Europe. And uh, <laughs> they, uh, there was, it was in several successive buildings, let me describe, the, and surrounded by uh, those horrible uh, metal blockade thingies that they do in front of the White House and whatnot. And a very, very, uh, if I may say so, a, a diligent and yet scanty uh, security staff. And uh, sk- skeletal, I would say. And um, 
But there was no way to fucking blow a bone or anything. I found a place, of course, but I'm saying there was no evident way. And uh, worse than that, there was no food on campus except for a hot dog stand, which was beyond the pale of fucking... I mean, I've, I've been to better hot dog stands in the 70s at the Circle Star Theater in San Carlos, California. And, uh, and I don't mean better. And uh, it was rude. Uh, and, and I thought, we're in Los Angeles. Food trucks, please pull them up and let us go. Make a, make, a, make a cordon that opens up to the two food trucks or whatever and have two security guards stand there and go like, food truck? Uh, uh, tacos and grilled cheese. Thank you. That's what we want. And um, also, it was fucking hot in Pasadena. Like, and, you know, like the planet, surface of Mercury, you know, horrible, Venusian, ho- just unceasing fucking beating down waves of white people heat that really... <laughs> Harsher Mel. Uh, so walking between the buildings was an uh, excruciating experience. And uh, uh, I'd like to liken it to some of the horrible tragedies that are going on in the world now, what I had to go through on the weekend by having to walk several yards from one building to another in Pasadena. What I'm asking for is a parade and a rally. Uh, I don't think it's too much to ask for. My white privilege demands it. But we went and saw Vincente Fox on the last night. And Al Madrigal, who's an old buddy of mine, and a, a, a journalist named Alejandra, whose last name escapes me, and I f- forgive me, um, uh, conducted the interview with him. He was president of Mexico for eight years during the Bush administration and uh, was quite an intelligent, forthright, sensitive, and uh, uh, articulate man. First of all, he looks like a character actor playing the president of Mexico because he's six and a half feet tall with a mustache and sterling eyes. And when I met him, I went, Mr. President, and he went, mucho gusto. And I had to reach into my shitty Spanglish fucking packet and I went, igualmente. And then I almost said, me amo. And I caught myself halfway through me amo. Because only a first grader says that. And so he was on stage and he was taking questions and whatnot. And he had a little sport coat on, no tie. And uh, then at one point they asked him a question and he fucking stood up and took, you know, all of a sudden. Another thing about this issue that is most important. And everybody was like, oh my God. And so <laughs> women were tweeting in the crowd, fell in love with Vincente Fox this afternoon. Like he was, he cast a spell. Like it was the presidential. And I turned to Jennifer and she turned to me and we said the same thing at the same time. Couldn't he be governor of California? <laughs> He's only 73. Jerry's 77, 78. Jerry's leaving, obviously, after the next one. This is it. You know, I get it. And, and like, Vincente, come on. I, got, I need four years. You're bilingual. You're great looking. Then why? But why, Greg? Why? Okay, because when they brought up Trump, he was like, that man, that dark shadow, that alter ego, that... He is not... And then he went into a long diatribe about how many Americans work in Mexico. And then, of course, the, obviously, the, the thing that we all hold to be true, that... People come here from Mexico and work two shifts a day and send their money back home and are generally not the criminal element that Donald Trump is making them out to be in so much as that the western part of the United States would cease operating wholly uh, and that our economies are ultimately intertwined. There's no, they're our biggest trading partner for fuck's sake. There's a zillion of them, which he also pointed out. And then he said, Donald Trump thinks he can come from the private sector because he is a businessman. I am from the private sector, but I worked my way up. As a legislator, then I run for president. You have to be a politician to run. And then he went into this fantastic thing about the banks, right? You know how they're all going to punitively punish the banks and the banks are going to do this and that? And he's like, the banks need to exist so that we have an economy. And it was like, yeah. 
There's no closing all the banks or anything like that. That's a very poor idea. Uh, if England has taught us anything in the last two weeks, it's that isolationism and protectionism and uh, fear of immigrants is a, is a foolhardy and trepidatious path that leads to the sum total of everyone losing their net worth by about 30% within 24 hours. And uh, not only that, the repercussions will go on. And I said repercussions because it sounded sexier. <laughs> So he was quite impressive. He, and um, we met James Carville uh, and Paul Begala and Van Jones and who else? Uh, 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 oh, God, I am blanking on her fucking name. Well, Wendy Davis was awesome. And that, that's going to take me to the second part of the show here. Uh, no, Sally Cohn, uh, the, the uh, host. And uh, like, so it was really fun uh, to go um, to it. And of course, I'm. Uh, I described it as if you're a political junkie, it's like going to the dealer's house who has everything. Because Sarah Palin was there. Uh, what's that asshole who hates Hillary worse than like Denise Duzer, whatever the fuck his name is? He was there shaking hands and high fiving people and shit. I mean, it, li- literally, we were only missing Ted Nugent. It was pretty. <laughs> Glenn Beck was there. Oh yeah, it was a fucking free for all. It was a free for all. Ann Coulter was there. I didn't see Ann Coulter. She was interviewed. James Carville interviewed Sarah Palin. I talk about it on the last show. And a 10-year-old got up. You might have seen it on the interweb. And said, uh, how can you support... Uh, and James Carville, because he's a great show person. Um, and by the way, from New Orleans, lives in New Orleans, wearing a fleur-de-lis on his lapel. Oh, yeah. And he looks dead like fucking Dr. Xavier from the School for Gifted Mutants, right? Like, James Carville's got... You know, with the, sh- the shades on. Ha, nice to meet you. Uh... And he brought the child on stage. And so the child sat there and went, uh, Governor Palin, uh, how can you support a Donald Trump after what he said to Megyn Kelly? And Governor Palin, of course, gave one of her answers, you know. Uh, Skippy Jack, who likes Fruit Loops? They're all good. Oranges and lemons, that's what America's all about, not the lamestream media. You don't want a moose sneaking up on you. She said, I know Donald Trump and he's not a sexist. And that's I wouldn't be supporting him if he was, which is a blanket. So he was interviewed after the small child, and um, he responded with, "She didn't answer my question." Well, that's polit- as Mick Jagger would say, "It's politics, isn't it?" Uh, what do they say? Do, do you mind uh, when they make you change the words on TV when he had to sing "Satisfaction" and Mick went, "Well, you know, first it's you, then it's like an ad for like." washing machines you know (laughs) it's it's, it's television isn't it (laughs) today's episode is brought to you by Squarespace whether you need a landing page a beautiful gallery a professional blog or an online store it's all included with your Squarespace website it's easy Creating your website with Squarespace is a simple, intuitive process. You can add and arrange your content and features with the click of a moose mouse. Free custom domain. Squarespace makes adding a domain to your site simple. If you sign up for a year, you'll receive a custom domain for free for a year. Beautiful templates. Design a best-in-class online store with Squarespace's award-winning templates, customizable settings, and more. All without a single plug-in. Seamless commerce tools. From nationally recognized brands to your favorite local shops, Squarespace is trusted by hundreds of thousands of savvy shop owners around the world, including all the tools you need to track inventory, process orders, and send custom emails in one intuitive interface. Squarespace Commerce allows you to understand every aspect of your business. 
customer support. Squarespace offers 24-7 customer support. Every member of the customer care team is an experienced Squarespace user working in a Squarespace office. No matter how technical your problem or trivial seeming your question, one of their team is always online to assist you. Start your free trial today at squarespace.com and enter the offer code PROOPS, P-R-O-O-P-S, to get 10% off your first purchase. Squarespace, set your website apart and use the offer code PROOPS. And don't forget the R, and I thank you. It was a magnificent uh, week this week uh, for uh, women, I think. Uh, a very big week in the United States. And uh, yeah, baby. Well, let's just jump right in because we've only got two hours left. Uh, start them here and line them up to there. Um, Jennifer gave me all this. Uh, Patty Sheen, I think this is from an interview on the HuffPo, quite frankly. But I think she pulled it from... Maybe someone can tell me how to pronounce this um, website. It's spelled T-O-W-E-L-R-O-A-D. Towel Road. But What is it? Toll. Toll. That's what I thought. We discussed it today, and um, we were certain that it was. Thank you for that backup. <laughs> I reckon, was that Eric who said that, or Lou? Todd. Todd. <laughs> I got all the white guys here. Patty Sheen, the openly lesbian city commissioner of Orlando, Florida, is blasting the Republican Party for fomenting anti-LGBT hatred, hatred which fueled the mass shooting at the gay nightclub Pulse on June 12th. Sheen spoke with Michelangelo Signorelli about the massacre, saying she was upset, and this is what she said, and this is the good part. Um, By the way, she's a a city commissioner of Orlando, Florida, and openly um, lesbian, just to reiterate that part. So... um, to be a, a elected official in Orlando and come out like this is fantastic beyond all measure. Marco Rubio, the senator from Florida, walked on our bloodstained streets with people from the Hispanic community. Uh, Rubio has been a vocal opponent of LGBT rights and promised if elected president to try to overturn the Supreme Court's marriage equality ruling. And he went right back to Washington, one of the few times he actually showed up for work, and voted against the sensible gun legislation. If this doesn't change your heart, there were people from Rubio's office. It was a hairstylist who got shot and killed. There was a personal connection to people from his office he had with these young people, and he still couldn't find it in his heart to do the right thing. Sheen added of Florida's anti-gay governor, Rick Scott. My governor couldn't say the word gay until he was called out on it. Of all Republicans, I've called a lot of them out on it. I said, how, how dare you come up to my city, our city, and stand in front of the microphone and take up space? You loaded those bullets with hatred as far as I'm concerned. Um, it's very, it's a, yeah, exactly. We understand uh, the heat of the situation, but she's absolutely right about that. Um, uh, uh, someone pointed out on, one of, on somewhere I read on the web, and that's the vaguest I'll ever be on the show, I hope, uh, that what Trump's done is take uh, the Republican Party from a dog whistle to a bullhorn, uh, right? Uh, it's always been the same subcurrent and the same uh, text that they want to get through, and that's that women are evil and need to be punished, that minorities are to be feared, that immigrants are to be uh, uh, disused and, and, and kept out and that there's a threat of the other at all times from every community, the Muslim community, the gay community. The gay community is, is going to use your bathrooms and corrupt your children. The Muslim community is going to blow you up. Uh, it's always something like that. And um, Trump's just taken it out into the open and basically said what they've been saying for the last, I don't know. I mean, you can go back to the year 2000 um, and that was an election that was um, uh, uh, quote unquote won uh, by George Bush. And uh, thank you. Uh, I'll say my joke because it's a very good one. Uh, I was surprised Haiti didn't invade us to install a democracy. Um, 
uh, th- that what happened in that election, which was decided by the Supreme Court, uh, was a pivotal moment in American history because it would have been another Democratic president, Al Gore. Although now that we know what we know about Al Gore, you're kind of like, hmm, um, not quite John Edwards level, but there you are. Um, in any case, uh, uh, she's right about Governor Scott and uh, uh, Senator Rubio. Uh, they're staunch anti-gay guys, and they play to the grandstand. And, you know, say you're a Christian and say that it's against your beliefs, even though the Bible, of course, doesn't mention homosexuality in any way, as far as I know. Uh, there is goat tapping in one part, which is kind of freaky, and bodies do rise from the grave when Christ dies, so there's zombies. Uh, but as far as queers go, I don't remember Jesus ever going, fucking faggots. Um He lived with a bunch of men in the desert for ages, so he would have known better than anyone. Um, And the crowd's gone quite quiet now. (laughs) What are you getting at, Greg? Even if you do believe all that, isn't it time to open your heart a little bit and just um, accept that? um, You know, you wouldn't say it about... uh, uh, I mean, you would, because there's enough rednecks still around. We've we've discovered that, that uh, we're quite full of rednecks. Um, you, you, in general discourse, you wouldn't say it about a zillion different types of groups, but uh, um, I find that Asians and women and, and gay people are always open fucking field for uh, any kind of disparaging, all people of color, but it's really time that we all move on and just acknowledge that we've kind of gone to a different era and that even the elected officials who represent their constituencies at a certain point have to fucking reconsider especially in light of what's going on in the general world by that I mean the Brexit of course and what that leads to which is um, right wing demagoguery everywhere let's push on Shakespeare uh, which is quite a good site written by Melissa McEwen uh, she calls from different news sources and whatnot, and gives her own commentary um Donald Trump uh, repeated the calls for the return of waterboarding against Islamic State militants. Um, This is in light of what happened in Istanbul, which was, of course, a devastating tragedy. And uh, if you've never been to Istanbul, um, I suggest you go. It's fantastic. Um, It's the wildest place I think I've ever been with Jennifer. And uh, um, uh, Istanbul has the the sum total history of not only Europe, um, but Asia and the Middle East, uh, culminating in in an insane mishmash of modern and... um, Islamic, Byzantine, every, Roman, Greek, every era. Um, the Bosporus is a, a, a magnificent body of water that you can take a ferry up and down, many different ferries, and cross on different bridges, the Horn and everything. It's a stunning city. And the Turkish people are beautiful people and highly cultured and invented civilization, uh, as far as we know. And uh, for this kind of horror to happen to them again and again, it's been a terrible couple of years, obviously, for them. But then they're adjacent to all of the shit going down. Um, in any case, the answer, of course, for me, is never more violence, because I don't believe anything except violence begets more violence. Donald Trump has repeated calls for the return of waterboarding, um, saying, I like it a lot. His comments at a rally in Ohio came after suicide bombers killed the people at Istanbul. You have to fight fire with fire. Um, That's Old Testament, right? An eye for an eye. Um, It's not New Testament, and I would hope that we've moved on to the New Testament at this late date. Um, We have to fight so viciously and violently because we're dealing with violent people. Wrong. We have to negotiate. We have to use craft. We have to do what we've been doing, which, by the way, he's always talking about um, 
that Obama's not fighting violently enough against ISIL. Um, we're bombing them constantly, and they've had to relinquish a bunch of cities. I don't know if you follow the war at all, but um, it goes back and forth. But they're on the run, and, and they're being broken up bit by bit as time goes on because of the war, yes, war, that Obama is pursuing against them that the next president will have to continue pursuing. There is no stop to that war against ISIL. I'm sorry to tell you, unlike the Iraq war, which came to at least a mild cessation at one point. It's resumed, obviously. Um, I'm not going to dwell on the horrible specifics of all this. Let's get to the matter at hand, which is that Donald Trump... Uh, I'll, I'll finish what she wrote here. Um, Mr. Trump said at one point, he asked the crowd, what do you think about waterboarding? And they cheered. I like it a lot. I don't think it's tough enough. And she wrote, breathtaking, terrifying, indecent. <clears throat> I would agree. Unless you're um, Torquemada or unless you're a Nazi warlord, the idea of uh, promoting torture and getting people to cheer for torture is a real bad idea, just from a very basic human level. And further than that, we're supposed to be the light of the world, the democratic leader of the world, um, the leading economy of the world, and the policemen of the world. Our morality has been compromised um, um, with predator drones and torture camps and all the things we've done. But for a presidential candidate to get up and... TV and say that we want a waterboard more and I like it a lot is a, is a terrible um, and awful thing to say. It's not even couched in the most elusive vagaries of diplomatic terms. He's not even doing the, what Nazi Germans would have done, which was never go near the subject, but somehow touch upon it. He's simply stating outright that we need to waterboard um, people when I think you'll find <clears throat> torture is not really that effective a medium for extracting the information that we need. Bribery, on the other hand, <laughs> I wish I was kidding, uh, and uh, diplomacy uh, do quite a lot and can. Um, yeah, every once in a while, uh, America is killing people, which is like every day. Um, and we feel that we have to do that for the security of our country and all that jazz. But to get on stage and say, I like waterboarding is uh, uh, sort of uh, the inhumanity of it is marked and it ha has to be noted and we have to take uh, uh, we have to take time to think about what that means that uh, a 69 year old man who's quite wealthy and uh, we're not quite sure of his motives still at this late weird date in the election when he has all the delegates and he's sure to be the candidate uh, barring some fucking revolution at, in Cleveland <laughs> At the convention, which, by the way, no legitimate politician is going to speak at or attend. Um, uh, Herbert Walker's not going. Walker's not going. Mitt Romney's not going. Cheney's not going. Like, George F. Will is decidedly not going. No one's going. So, usually, it's a showcase for people to speak. This time, they're going to have Mike Tyson, Mike Ditka, <laughs> and Bobby Knight. So, it's going to be... Shit show is a term. Will you? Thank you. Um, shit show is a term I hate to bandy around because it's overused in society uh, like genius and amazing or amazeballs if you will um, but the Republican convention is going to be less than a shit show this is going to there hasn't been a Republican convention ever this shit is what I'm about to say um, uh, even at, even at the Mitt Romney one 
Mitt Romney was not my cup of tea. I was certainly not going to vote for him in any way. He seemed like a grown-up adult who'd made a decision in his life and could uh, take a piece of paper that had information on it, digest it, and discuss it with a room full of people. Um, maybe I'm overcharacterizing Mitt Romney. But Donald Trump doesn't seem to have any of those qualities. He would ignore the piece of paper, make a rash decision, um, hear a piece of information, react to it immediately in a terrible reactionary way. And by that, I mean an emotional and childlike way and not consider things, which is um, if Obama has one quality that's overarching, it's not uh, at the beginning. They used to say it was that he was cool. He's not cool. He's a geek of the highest caliber. If you haven't noticed that by now, you're not a law professor at Harvard if you're like one of the guys. And... (laughs) It's his sang-froid. He does not overreact to every situation. I remember meeting someone who met him, and they said, what's your day like? And he said, you have to, you have to understand. My day is like Everything that hits my desk is code red. Thank you. So he spends the day dealing with shit that you would burst into tears if that was happening in your agenda. You know what I mean? If I handed you a thing that said uh, uh, the Saudis were bombing the Yemenis into fucking submission and that there was uh, uh, the Boko Haram was uh, stealing girls and what were you to do? You're the leader of the free world. Uh, uh, that uh, the police were shooting everyone in Ferguson. What would you do? What would you fucking do? And the thing about Obama that I think distinguishes him from many presidents is one, his Supreme Court uh, nominees were outstanding and outstanding and uh, he does, he's not overreactive he's calm, judicious measured and presidential a world leader is not a blustery, fighty, fists up fucking hat up dude uh, with a fucking hair across his ass that's, that's not a recipe for success uh, in the world um, I know that Putin seems like that, but he's not. He's a cold, calculated KGB dude. If you remember what W said when he met Putin, he said, I looked into his eyes and I knew I could trust him. And I was always like, he gave you the KGB hypno stare. That's why you thought that. Uh, in any case, uh, and then this happened this week, and uh, this is fantastic. Misty Snow, Utah voters picked a historic, or if you will, an historic. I prefer that. <laughs> call me old-fashioned. Old I know that historic does not begin with a vowel, and that the rule is generally, if an A is followed by a vowel, you make it an an, but it's not aspirated. <laughs> and largely unknown. Your argument, grammatically, lies largely on a fallacy, Greg. (laughs) And I think you'll find little, if any, swamp territory that's going to support you. You will sink, like the Trump presidency, into ignominy. Um, Utah voters picked an historic and largely unknown Democratic candidate to challenge Senator Mike Lee this November. Misty K. Snow is the first transgender nominee from a major party to run for a U.S. Senate seat, and she's among the first transgender people to run for Congress. And this is what makes it even more awesome beyond any measurable fucking discernible. uh, uh, All of our calculations have been tossed into the bin because there's such a thing as coincidence and there's such a thing as awesome. Misty Plowright. A transgender woman claimed the Democratic nomination in Colorado's conservative 5th House District on Tuesday. There's two transgender people this week that are running for elected office, and they're both named Misty. 
Look at me. I'm as helpless as a kitten up a tree. Uh, I'm Misty and too much in love. It's so beyond awesome. Primary voters in Utah and Colorado selected transgender women to run for spots in Congress next fall. A first in major American political history. So, Governor Scott and Senator Rubio and everyone who opposes uh, transgender bathrooms and everyone who opposes LGBT rights and everyone who thinks homophobia is solved, um, get up on this. And I say this from the depths of West Hollywood here. Uh, <laughs> Let's see here. Let's have a little bit of background about them. Misty K. Snow will run against Tea Party favorite Mike Lee in Utah this November, and Misty Plowright will challenge Representative Doug Lamborn in Colorado. Both women face uphill battles. Snow and Republican heavy Utah and Plowright in uh, Colorado's 5th district, the most conservative. There are, like every state, uh, there's the cities. And in the cities, there's... Thank you for bringing me that, by the way. Um... It, there's a, a, a gay people and people of color and, and life goes on as normal. Like, oh, oh, noodles, oh, burritos. Then as you travel outside of town, all of a sudden uh, the music starts to change and shit. And, and all of a sudden road signs are shot up because people are on meth and they're angry at the road sign. And then next thing you know, you're being looked at because you're wearing a sport coat and have glasses and are named Greg and look the way you do. And um, that's how America works. So the fifth is like that, right? I mean, we have the Inland Empire here in L.A., and we have uh, uh, Simi Valley and shit and Ventura County and all that. I like Ventura County, and I play there every once in a while. And every time I go, there's more leathery-faced airline pilots who are voting for Trump than I can possibly count. It's always wild. Plowright's 33 years old and works in IT, was similarly successful in her district, da-da-da, uh, Racism. Let's see here. And moving on. Uh, this is also from Shakespeare. This is about uh, the Brexit vote, which we've discussed uh, briefly on the show last week in the episode you didn't hear. And uh, uh, it was uh, motivated uh, largely by racism in England. Um, that's what really captured the public's imagination was the xenophobia that the immigrants were coming in to take over. Now, I was there for three weeks running up to the election, and I was in London the whole time. I was in Wales and then London, and everywhere in Wales there was vote leave uh, by all the, the rich people who own the hotels and, and B&Bs that were dotted about Wales. Um, and I uh, had got into very lengthy discussions with a great deal of people about the uh, entire affair. And I don't claim to be an expert at all on it. However, um, it seemed obvious by the ads that the um, UKIP party was running and that the Leave a party, uh, Leave movement was running, that it was almost always a load of Arab people coming in at once uh, from Syria and whatnot. Um, well, the reality is that England is full of uh, Hungarians, Polish people, people from all over the European Union who come to work and play and also uh, study there and that this is going to fuck up their destiny harder than almost any crap decision they've ever made. Not since 1939 when Neville Chamberlain said, I assure you that the Chancellor of Germany has no aggressive intentions. <laughs> I have in my hand a piece of paper, um, and I wave the hand with no paper in it, by the way. I have in my hand uh, that this is a very poor decision indeed. Um, and so, uh, what's the point of this? Well, um, it's not just that England is leaving the European Union, which they will most assuredly do, in so much as Angela Merkel, 
um, and Germany is the leading country in the EU. Don't have any illusions about that. Um, I said they're not coming back on this vote. David Cameron, two days ago, the PM, who resigned immediately after saying he was going to stay, whatever way the vote went, um, told the, the parliament and the people of England that it was the people's will and that that had to be done. The referendum was voted on. That's a single vote. A referenda is several. Right? And uh, in any case... Uh, they're going to have to leave in two years' time and invoke Article 50 of the European Union Constitution. Blah, de blah, de blah. The point is this. Um, Brexit has resulted in increased harassment and violence of people of color in the UK. Quote, police believe there's been an increase in hate crimes and community tensions since last week's referendum. Initial figures show an increase of 57% in reported incidents between Thursday and Sunday compared with the same days four weeks earlier. The National Police Chief's Council said 85 incidents were reported, blah, blah, blah. Anyone who wants to pretend this wasn't inevitable following a campaign of fear-mongering and race-baiting, and this is what she wrote, and I concur, so that's why I'm reading it, following a campaign of fear-mongering and race-baiting is a mendacious scoundrel. As Tennessee Williams said, mendacity. Uh, and this is mendacity at its highest caliber. To give you an idea of what happened in England, should you not be up on things, um, Nigel Farage, who's uh, uh, the spokesperson for the UKIP party, which is avowedly racist, determinedly anti-immigrant, um, uh, celebrated quite wildly on the night they won. And he had said that due to the savings of them leaving the uh, EU, they were going to put $350 million into the National Health Service, which is their, uh, uh, their national health. We have Obamacare. They actually have a free service that everyone can avail themselves of, which is, by the way, labyrinthine and fucking, you know, bureaucratic. It's not as easy as it seems. Uh, don't let anyone tell you that um, all of Scandinavia works on a socialist system that clicks along like a fucking well-greased train. All that is nonsense. Uh, travel around the world and you'll see that um, things work as well as they can almost everywhere, but they don't work the way that we're presented it here in America with these simpling ideas because, as my friend Johnny Steele once said in San Francisco, um, taking America into the economic future is like taking a busload of demented people who are, you know, half-baked to Disneyland in a van. Because <laughs> the whole time they're like, are we here yet? And you're like, no, not yet. There's a lot of other things that have to happen. <laughs> when are we here? Um, yeah, Johnny. So, uh, uh, in any case, uh, uh, Nigel Farage leads this racist party and um, uh, as I said before uh, I, I know I was leading to a point with this and when I remember it god damn it I'm coming back to it and I'm saying it he promised to the NHS and then on morning TV breakfast TV the very next day after the vote uh, the referendum was tallied he was on breakfast TV on fucking uh, Pierre, uh, Pierre, Piers Morgan's show and you know how much I love Pierce <laughs> I believe I said once upon a time the two worst imports from England were Simon Cowell, Syphilis, and Piers Morgan. <laughs> That's three. Anyway, Piers has a breakfast show in England now. And um, it wasn't him, but it was uh, one of the people, other people on the breakfast show, a woman, um, said to Nigel Farage, so about the 350, uh, that you're going to chuck in the NHS. And he went, um... <laughs> It's not going to happen. <laughs> so it was predicated on lies and falsehoods and built on people's fear of the other. 
And um, the ramifications and the repercussions are fucking extraordinary. Um, groovy time to go to England if you want to. Um, your money's worth a lot more. Uh, if you're thinking about buying, mm, no. The bubble's not going to break it. At the same time as letting the so-called so many immigrants that they let in, which they didn't let in as many as Germany or France or many other European countries um, from the Middle East um, or Greece or whatnot, they... Uh, uh, let in every oligarch from Russia. There's mucho gangsters and every uh, 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 everybody from the Middle East that has mad money. All of many, the central London is bought up and no one lives in those houses anymore and that's why all the neighborhoods it's gentrification at its highest level with people who have mad money. So you see their cars being washed and their beds being turned over and maids coming in and out and the whole neighborhood's boarded up. There's no more stores, nowhere to buy milk, no more dry cleaners, no more corner shops because that's what happens when you let rich people move into a place and make it their fucking summer home, basically. And so at the same time as that's happened over the last 10, 15 years in London, um, they've let some immigrants in, um, many of whom, by the way, if you go to London, everyone who serves you will be from Hungary or Poland or someplace like that, and they're perfectly nice, or Lebanon or, uh, you know, name any fucking country you want. Um, and that's what makes London, London. Like what makes New York, New York, or makes LA, LA. The fact that we're polyglot and that we're uh, uh, cosmopolitan. Do, do you want to live in uh, northern Canada in the 40s? Uh, do you want an oppressive all-white world? What? Who wants that? That's what I never understand when people vote against their own interests. Like, never mind that, like, I get it. You, you hate everyone else who's not you. But... Uh, Surely you want food and culture and dancing and anything good that's ever going to happen. Bacon-wrapped burgers are not the be-all and end-all of... Exactly. Tacos. Um, I, I'm going to carry on here. No, the show's over. No, it's not. Uh, uh, a, uh, the Supreme Court this week uh, distinguished themselves. I woke up Monday morning and um, Jennifer uh, was letting me sleep. And uh, uh, it was, you know, it was early. It was two-ish. And um, I don't sleep that late. That was supposed to be funny, but now you've lost faith in me. <laughs> I get up in the morning like everyone else. This is Los Angeles. The whole idea that we're laid back here and let shit just roll over us. Are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> There's never been a town so attuned to the fucking croissant of success burning in the oven. <laughs> People get up here and go, I have got to go kill two motherfuckers <laughs> who are ahead of me in line. <laughs> this is not a laid back town. People don't drive laid back. They don't go to a restaurant here. If your food takes five minutes, do you throw a shit fit or what? <laughs> Any other town, no one would do that. In LA, like lunch, 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 lunch. <laughs> A white person comes and takes your order, then a Mexican delivers your order two minutes later. Am I wrong? No, I'm not. Uh, yeah. So, uh, the whole idea that I sleep till two, I don't fucking think so. 7.38, and Jennifer goes, wake up uh, to a world of what's happened for women today. And the TV's on, and it's Elizabeth Warren and Hillary at the fucking Cincinnati rally. And then the, the Supreme Court's decisions on guns and HB2, right? The Texas ruling. And it was just a grand, grand uh, way to wake up. Um, 
Abortion providers in places like Texas are heroically courageous. The Supreme Court's ruling will help them do their jobs. This is by a woman named Dawn Porter, who made a a picture called Trapped. It's streaming on PBS. It's the struggle to protect reproductive rights. The documentary Trap follows the struggles of clinic workers and lawyers battling to keep abortion safe and legal for millions of women in America. I'm going to read this at some length, so fucking order out, bitch. (laughs) If you've never been to an abortion clinic, here's what you can expect. Protesters outside will gather as close to the clinics as state laws allow, some right outside the door. Their voices grow louder. As uh, the closer you get to the clinic, your jaw will tense for the few minutes it takes for the clinic staff to unlock the door after they assess you through the security cameras. You will check over your shoulder many times before you're safely inside. The first time I visited an abortion clinic in Jackson, Mississippi, my mother is from Casilla, Mississippi. I have a great deal of family from Mississippi. Mississippi, as I've discussed on the show many times before, not at the forefront of progressive thought in the United States. However... Um, any state that can say uh, that uh, the blues and Faulkner came from there uh, certainly has a voice uh, in America. Uh, I made my way through the protesters holding photos of smiling black babies next to gruesome photos of purported botched abortions. They told me they were praying for me. In 2012, I was in aware abortion clinics across America were struggling to stay open, fighting a losing battle. Once I read there was only one clinic open in the entire state of Mississippi, I decided to make a film. I spent three years filming at clinics in Alabama, Mississippi, and Texas, uh, and watched the clinics comply with regulations commonly known as trap laws. Uh, while I was shooting the Supreme Court, blah, one of those uh, clinics, Whole Women's Health, brought the case that the Supreme Court ruled on Monday, overturning... The restrictions there for placing unconstitutional obstacles for women seeking abortions. Like so many people, I closely watched the internet for news on the ruling all Monday morning. When it came out, I could feel myself start to cry. Now, we've talked about women's agency on the show a thousand million zillion billion times, but I really can't stress it enough. If this were men and we were talking about men having to go drive 250 miles and uh, spend the night at someone's house and borrow money just to get a simple medical procedure that would make their life easier, a medical procedure that was endemic to their uh, gender. Um, Why can't women be granted that autonomy? Why can't women be granted that agency? Um, This Supreme Court ruling is profound because uh, not only uh, was it decisive because it was, um, what was it, 5-3? Uh, it wasn't 4-4. It was 5-3. Uh, Kennedy and uh, Breyer wrote a, 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 a wonderful um, uh, brief on it. But uh, uh, Kennedy flipped over. And Kennedy had been the one that was recalcitrant because of Gonzalez in the 90s. I won't go into the whole details. The point is this. Um, it's going to be very difficult to go back for a lot of these states. And Alabama and a bunch of states have the same kind of cases coming in front of the Supreme Court quite soon. And what's going to happen in the next four years is uh, there's a bunch of justices that are quite old. And uh, there's and Clarence Thomas is threatening to stand down. And so, yeah, we, we're talking about three, maybe four justices. 
Now, when you look at the justices that Clinton and Obama put on the court, you can imagine the kind of court that might happen if a Democratic president is there. Um, a court that will um, adjudicate for civil rights, that um, Citizens United might even get reviewed and overturned. I'm not going to get crazy on this. Uh, but that definitely abortion laws and women's rights are going to be at the forefront. What I'm praying and hoping and praying and praying and hoping and fucking praying for, aside from Merrick fucking Garland, is... <laughs> That there's more women on the Supreme Court. As Ruth Bader Ginsburg was asked, uh, you're, uh, they said to her, how many women is enough on the Supreme Court? And she said, nine. It was always nine men before, and no one asked that question. Do women get to be equal with men? If they do that, that means they get to be all of the people in a thing. All of the people in the, that are leads in a movie, like Ghostbusters. All of the people that are in Congress. All of the people that are on the Supreme Court. Women are woefully under-fucking-represented. All the right. Uh, moving on here. A, a couple of terrible things, and then we're going to move on. A study from the University of Texas revealed the attempts at self-abortion spiked across the state when HB2 went into effect, with between 100,000 and 240,000 women trying to terminate their own pregnancies since the law went into effect. Women were calling the clinic and going, I've got a drug cabinet here in my house. What could I take to fucking abort? Well, blue cohosh is something you can take, but I wouldn't recommend it without uh, any kind of supervision. The stories I heard left a lasting impression on me. I will never forget the faces of the women and the girls I met. The woman who told me they sold their possessions to afford an abortion. The 11-year-old the clinic was, the clinic suspected was a victim of incest. The 13-year-old who was gang raped and traveled hundreds of miles for an abortion, only to be turned away because the clinic did not have a nurse to put her to sleep during the procedure. That's what HB2 proscribed. And that's what the Supreme Court overturned. Now, where do we stand today, right here, right now? Where we stand is all the clinics haven't reopened and all the clinics have been closed, you see. They've gone from 49 clinics to 20-something clinics in the state of Texas. The, the healthcare providers who work for women in all those places are going to have to reopen these clinics bit by bit by bit. That's how bad uh, the devastation has been in the last few years. And that's the task of the next, uh, I think, Let's call it eight years. Uh, let's say there's a woman president. And then let's say there's a woman president again. And then let's say there's a woman president again and again, making 16 years. And they appoint all the different people to the Supreme Court. And by then, Justice Roberts in 16 years will be too old and he'll have to leave. Um, we, we can have a whole different world, you guys, uh, for reals. Um, this is from another article, uh, and it's about what Ruth Bader Ginsburg wrote and what Breyer wrote. Um, the justices didn't believe Texas was just trying to help its poor, helpless women out because that's been the take of the anti-choice people. Yeah. They're not pro-life. They're anti-choice. Um, if you were pro-life, you'd want women to fucking have access to health care instead of seeking illegal abortions, as I just described. Mm. Uh, instead, that, that's what the anti-choice forces have been saying, that it's a women's health issue. But of course it isn't. Instead, Justice Breyer said this, quote, in the face of no threat to women's health, Texas seeks to force women to travel long distances to get abortions in crammed to capacity super facilities. And then Ruth Bader Ginsburg said this. I'm going to leave out all the court cases she cites because it gets quite technical. So long as this court adheres to Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood of Southeastern PA versus Casey, targeted regulation of abortion provider laws like HB2 that do little or nothing for health, but rather strew impediments to abortion, Planned Parenthood of Wisconsin, cannot survive judicial inspection. 
this sounds very technical and it is, but by her writing in one of her concurrences that it cannot survive judicial inspection means what we can expect from the court in the future is that all cases of a similar nature will be discarded and overruled because if they cannot write, so uh, it's a grand day and shit like that. Um, uh, also, there was a case about uh, firearms and people who had committed domestic violence um, uh, not being allowed to buy firearms. Justice Thomas, uh, you may recall last year, spoke for the first time in his long tenure on the court to question that ruling. He feels that men who have uh, shown a history of domestic violence should be allowed to um, own guns. Uh, and he ma- made a lot of cases for it here. Let's see. Never mind. <laughs> Anyway, that got overturned. The anomaly of it is that Sotomayor agreed with him due to one technicality, he said, but that one was over a turn six to two. Um, Jesse Williams was on the BET Awards this week, and uh, he gave a speech that was astounding, astonishing and profound. Um, He's on Grey's Anatomy, and he's uh, an activist, uh, quite an active activist. He's been at Ferguson and many other uh, events. Um, You'll find that he's been uh, involved in civil rights uh, for quite a good time. Um, in any case, I'm going to read you a couple little lines from the speech because it was profound at the BET Awards. This award, it's not for me. This is for the real organizers all over the country. Um, the more we learn about who we are and how we got here, the more we'll mobilize. This is for black, particular for black women in particular who have spent their lifetimes dedicated to nurturing everyone before themselves. We can and will do better for you. Now, what we've been doing is looking at the data and we know that police somehow manage to de-escalate, disarm and not kill white people every day. So what's going to happen is we're going to have equal rights and justice in our own country or we will restructure their function in ours. Now, and everyone stood at this point, I got more y'all. Yesterday would have been young Tamir Rice's 14th birthday, so I don't want to hear any more about how far we've come when paid public servants can pull a drive-by on a 12-year-old playing alone in a park in broad daylight, killing him on television, and then going home to make a sandwich. Tell Recky Boyd how much how it's so much better to live in 2012 than it is living in 1612 or 1712. Tell that to Eric Garner. Tell that to Sandra Bland. Tell that to Darian Hunt. Though all of us here getting money, that alone isn't going to stop this. Now dedicating our lives (coughs) to getting money just to give it right back. There's been no war we have not fought and died in the front lines of. He's speaking of black people. There's been no job we haven't done. There's no tax they haven't levied against us. and And we pay all of them. But freedom is somehow always conditional here. You're free, they keep telling us. But she would have been alive if she had hadn't acted so free. Freedom is always coming in the hereafter, but you know what? Though the hereafter is a hustle, we want it now. And let's get a couple of things straight here. Just a little side note. The burden of the brutalized is not to comfort the bystander. That's not our job. All right, stop with all of that. If you have a critique for the resistance, for our resistance, that is in specific Black Lives Matter, then you better have an established record of critique of our oppression. If you have no interest in equal rights for black people, then do not make suggestions to those who do sit down. We've been floating this country on credit for centuries, yo, and we're done watching and waiting while this invention called whiteness uses and abuses us. Burying black people out of sight and out of mind while extracting our culture, our dollars, our entertainment like oil, 
black gold, ghettoizing and demeaning our creations, then stealing them, gentrifying our genius, then trying us on like costumes before discarding our bodies like rinds of strange fruit. Using the, frame, uh, the phrase strange fruit is extraordinarily profound, and if you don't know what it means, you can Google it. Strange fruit is a direct reference to the lynching that happened in this country that carried on happening till people who are still alive, who are alive with us right now, their lifetimes. Um, the thing is, though, the thing is that just because we're magic doesn't mean we're not real. That is a, a, the, one of the greatest lines in, in history. Just because we're magic doesn't mean we're not real. I thought it was a, a real profound thing for him to say, and particularly um, at the BET Awards. Um, the truth is, all these things are going on in the United States, and he had a very articulate take on it. Um, the the fact that uh, the police uh, kill black people all the time and that black people are uh, up against uh, what they're up against, and not just black people, but everyone, but in specific black people here, uh, and that uh, this gets washed over and that we allow... Uh, demagogues like Donald Trump to get up and say I like waterboarding and this and that or people to talk about uh, not enacting gun control which is waged against the poor and women which is what who gets killed by guns um, is extraordinary and for him to address it in such a fantastic way I thought was a really profound and beautiful moment and uh, helped make this week awesome aside from everything else as I so often say on the show I don't want you to feel abject about how the world is turning out it was never different when I was a kid in the 60s there was terror all over the world and, and wars in the Middle East in the 70s there were also wars in the Middle East and terror all around the world in the 80s there was terror all around the world and war everywhere um, Paris was bombed in 1986 60 times one summer. When I went to England in 1992 to see my buddies, um, there was an IRA bombing campaign going on in the middle of London. Terror is a constant. Uh, it's not just at Istanbul this week or, or, or the Pulse nightclub in Orlando two weeks ago or, or that it's aimed at you in any way. You have to understand this is a constant condition uh, for humanity. But that the brilliant part is that we recognize that the Brexit was a huge mistake. We recognize that um, LGBT people have their rights, that two trans people are going to run for elective office in this country this week, that uh, the HBT, uh, HB2 uh, Texas ruling was struck down by the Supreme Court, um, that he, Mr. Williams was able to get up on BET and say the words he said, and that it's not controversial anymore. It's what's what. Um, that's an enormous leap fucking forward. Um, uh, that uh, a, a very intelligent woman is running against someone who's uh, probably the scariest candidate in my lifetime. Uh, all of these things are moves forward. I know they seem like moves to the side, but there's no fucking movement forward without an intense grasping by the people who hold on to power. Uh, they'll fight it till the last. Um, Racism and sexism, misogyny, homophobia, warmongering and violence will never fucking die because they're going to fight till their last breath to keep their hold on what's left in the world. But as you can see, things are way different uh, than they were uh, in so many ways. Uh, so that's my message of hope and uh, love and tolerance uh, on top of Mr. Williams' message, which was most profound. <clears throat> Things are abject, 
but they're on the fucking table. You know, seriously, this has been going on in America for a zillion years. As I've discussed on the show, the Civil War was fought so we could promulgate slavery. I mean, you know, the idea of keeping the union together and now the prison system that we have and the police system we have is evidence of that. And if you believe otherwise, you're, you're entitled to that. <laughs> That's what democracy is. Bill Cunningham was a fashion photographer for the New York Times and um, was a, a, a stanchion, of, a, 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 a part of fashion more than almost anyone else. Anna Winter said, we all, who's the editor of Vogue and not to be fucked with in any way. <laughs> Uh, I remember a picture of her from Spy Magazine in the, in the 80s where she was dancing in a disco and um, uh, there was someone standing behind her and her rear end was like this in a sequin dress and it said, so-and-so meets the business end of Anna Winter. <laughs> As she was known in the 80s, nuclear winter. Um, said we all dress for Bill Cunningham. Bill Cunningham didn't give a toss how vogue you were or if you were a supermodel or if you were a designer. He worked the streets of New York and posted up at 57th in New York and took pictures of people who were walking down the street. Poor people, anyone who had an interesting outfit on. Uh, if your cuffs turned up, your shoes, whatever you were wearing, a hat, uh, uh, the umbrella, the way you were carrying your umbrella, a satchel. Um, uh, he was really that person. He dressed in modest clothes that he bought from like a shop. Uh, like, uh, there was this like French uh, chef shop. He wore like the same blue coat. He rode a bicycle everywhere. He got hit on the bicycle. He had like 18 bicycles stolen from him. You can watch a documentary about Will Cunningham. Every Sunday in the New York Times, if you read the New York Times, there was a fashion section at the back, which was a bunch of pictures Bill Cunningham took. And then as the internet evolved and whatnot, you could go online and look at all of his pictures. Um, with him, it was all about the eye. He would go to very, very fancy fashion events uh, and openings and whatnot. And they'd go, Bill, would you like a glass of water? Would you like... He didn't drink or do anything like that. And he'd go, no. Like, he kept himself to himself. And he wore uh, these, like, little white, like, tennis shoes and shit. I mean, so... He's a real uh, jewel on the fashion scene because he was slightly outside of fashion, uh, which is a giant corporate endeavor run by, you know, Louis Vuitton and Moet Chandon and all those giant corporations that run fashion that bought, you know, every fashion house and hardly any designers, maybe Dries Van Noten and a few others own their own houses, you know. We'd like to believe it's all people in ateliers with a cigarette hanging out of their mouth, sticking a pen into a model. <laughs> Ouch, that hurt. Bill Cunningham turned fashion photography into his own branch of cultural anthropology on the streets of New York. This is from the Times. By the way, the Times had no plans for when he passed away. The Times just kept him on. He finally signed on as a full-time employee with them some years ago for the health plan. He had been an independent artist his whole life, and I'll get to why, and, and that's what makes him so awesome. Stylishly, flamboyantly, or just plain sensibly, he's swirling in the heavens. Mr. Cunningham was such a singular presence in the city. In 2009, he was designated a living landmark, and he was an easy one to spot, riding his bicycle through Midtown, where he did most of his field work. His bony, thin frame dropped in his utilitarian blue French worker's jacket, khaki pants, black sneakers. I said white. He himself was no one's idea of a fashion plate with his 35-millimeter camera. That's right. He didn't use a phone. Strung around his neck. Nothing escaped his notice. Not the fanny packs, the Birkin bags, the gingham shirts, the fluorescent biker shorts. Forty years working for the Times. 
he pointed his camera at tweed wearing blue blood New Yorkers with names like Rockefeller and Vanderbilt. Downtown by the piers, he clicked away at crop top wearing Vogers. Up in Harlem, he jumped off his bicycle. He rode more than 30 over the years, 30 bicycles, replacing one after another as they were wrecked or stolen for B-boys in low slung jeans. Uh, let's see here. Uh, the documentary is called Bill Cunningham, New York, uh, if you want to watch it. Mr. Cunningham told nearly anyone who asked about it, he was, uh, uh, the attendant publicity was a total hassle, a reason for strangers to approach and bother to him. He wanted to find subjects, not be the subject. He didn't own a television. He didn't go to the movies. He ate breakfast nearly every day at the Stage Star Deli on West 55, which is at 7. If you've ever been to New York, you wouldn't go into the Stage Star Deli. Uh, Jennifer wouldn't go into the Stage Star Deli. I've tried to make her go. That's where he ate breakfast every day. Where a cup of coffee, a sausage, egg, and cheese could be had until very recently for under $3. He lived until 2010 in the studio. And those places are leaving, by the way. All those crappy diners in New York. And I love those most. Where it's always like uh, a turkey sandy mash or a roast beef sandwich or whatever. And in New York, I love it. You don't get a refill of coffee. (laughs) You get a refill of fuck all in New York. You want coffee, you buy another fucking cup. Uh, he lived until 2010 in the studio above Carnegie Hall. Then they condoized that and tossed out all the artists. And by the way, if you watch the movie, you'll see the condo that he lived in was a room with a bed on a plank and all of his pictures. The bathroom was down the hall. Fucking A. Uh, here's the sentence I wanted to get to. Whether we'd like a glass of water, he stood off the side. We all, um, Anna Winter said, we all get dressed for Bill. Oh, fooey. Here it is. Um, he was like a war photographer. <laughs> he would climb over you to get a picture. I can't find the fucking sentence. Maybe it's in there. Mm. In any case, what he said was, anyone can have money. It's being uh, loose as an artist. That's what's important in this world. I'm paraphrasing him terribly here. Uh, but that's basically his position. He was like, I, I don't want to be bought uh, to do my photography. I want to take pictures of the people I want to take pictures of. He will be missed. Pat Summit, uh, the Lady Vols. Uh, Pat Summit, by the way, won more uh, games in Division One basketball than any person, men or women. And she was a woman. Uh Lifted the women's game from obscurity and national prominence during her 38-year career at Tennessee. Um, When she retired a couple years ago because she was having Alzheimer's and whatnot, I gave her uh, a spiel then, but I wanted to touch back on her again here um, because she she had Alzheimer's and she was a superb coach. Known for her boundless energy, Summit set her clocks ahead a few minutes to stay on schedule. The ladies does not slow down ever, one of her players, Kelly Jolly, said. If you can ever catch her sitting down doing nothing, you're one special person. She never had a losing record and her teams made an NCAA tournament every Season, She began her coaching career at Tennessee in 74 when her team finished 16 and 8. Uh, with a, a victory against Purdue in uh, 2005, she earned her 880th victory, moving her past North Carolina's Dean Smith as the all-time winningest coach. So, as we've discussed on the show, Abby Wamba, although I think she just got passed recently, uh, with the all-time winning sc- uh, score in international football play. And uh, Pat Summit, not Dean Smith, is the all-time winning NCAA coach. A woman. She earned her thousandth career win against Georgia in 2009. Summit won 16 
Southeastern Conference regular season titles, 16 conference tournament titles, eight-time SEC Coach of the Year, seven-time NCAA Coach of the Year, and the gold medal for the Olympic 1984 team. She was such a competitor, she refused to let a pilot land in Virginia when she went into labor. (laughs) She'd beaten her lady balls a few months earlier. Uh, Virginia had beaten her lady balls a few months earlier, preventing them from playing for a national title on their home floor. Um, It was only in 2012 when she was being honored with the Arthur Ashe Courage Award that she shared she had six miscarriages before giving birth to her son, Tyler. Uh, Pat Summit is swirling in the heavens. Scotty Moore, who is in Elvis Presley's band. Uh, Let's spin that first one here. I could talk all about Scotty Moore. He worked with Elvis for the first few years at Sun Studios in Memphis. Um, the, The receptionist thought Elvis was high. Here. Uh, this is what rockabilly is and um, Elvis improvised this in the studio because he knew the song and that's when Sam Phillips they didn't have talk back then stuck his head in the door and went that sounds good turn this one up a little bit I have no idea what you think of Elvis but this is the original Elvis Turn it down a little bit there. One day we... Oh, turn it up a little. That's his part. This is our Scotty. Um, George Harrison, anyone? Totally tasteful. Uh, turn that down a little. One day we went to have coffee with Sam and his secretary, Marion Keisker, and she was the one who brought up Elvis, Moore said. We didn't know that Marion had a crush on Elvis, and she asked Sam if he'd ever talked to that boy who'd been in there. Sam said to Marion, go back in there and get that boy's telephone number and give it to Scotty. Sam turned to me and said, why don't you listen to this boy and see what you think? Marion came back with a slip of paper and said, Elvis Presley, and I said, Elvis Presley, what the hell kind of name is that? <laughs> they covered a wide range of songs, from That's All Right to Mystery Train, uh, that's all right, your attention. They took it on the road to play any gig they could, adding dumber DJ Fontana. Uh, it was not going well until Bresley, uh, Presley broke into the spontaneous upbeat version of Big Boy Crudup's That's All Right. Moore and Black began jamming with Presley and helped work out the version that Phillips put on tape. Sam poked his head out the door, and he said, what are you guys doing? That sounds pretty good. And then this one's real good. Yeah. Crank this one up a little bit. Um, more echo. This is white people's blues. Uh, take this down a little bit. We didn't get enough to Bernie Worrell last week. Scotty Moore is swirling in the heavens, uh, playing a very tasteful lick. Um, uh, play, play a little bit of Heartbreak Hotel just for the... I know there's a lot of kids here, and you think Elvis was... Yeah, really loud. Really, really loud. Oh, the 
popular and it's not just because Trump supporters like him uh, Bernie Worrell uh, from Funkadelic Parliament um, is uh, swirling in the heavens we gave him a little bit on the last one but I wanted to kick a couple of them <clears throat> he was with his talking heads when they made the um, which fucking album speaking in tongues stop, is making, it? Sense. stop making sense but what was the what was that album called though what was it it was speaking in tongues <clears throat> anyway, Jennifer and I went and saw them at Berkeley, and Bernie was in the band, and all the uh, they had a very funky band that year. And um, hilariously, Bernie Worrell said, <laughs> when asked in the Wax Poetics interview to describe the Talking Heads vibe prior to the change of adding Steve Scales, bassist Buster Jones, and backup singer Dolet McDonald, he said, "Stiff, no rhythm, man." <laughs> Um, spin um, uh, my, I got a girlfriend uh, the girlfriend one because Bernie Wall is the keyboard player so really loud right and if, if you're David Burns Unbelievably funny. And, and throw that uh, throw that Parliament one on there, and we'll end on that shit. Um, in any case, yeah. Uh, <laughs> We're going to be at the punchline. We've changed the date. We're going to be there July 14th through the 16th. We're going to be in Montreal at the Just for Laughs Festival, uh, the 28th through the 31st of July. Just at it. And uh, we'll do the podcast on the 28th. In August, we'll be at Tacoma, uh, the 25th through the 27th at the Tacoma Comedy Club. And then Spokane on uh, the 28th of August. Portland in November. Uh, the Bell House in November. Vancouver in December, probably England again. Um, Whose Line is on the road with uh, me, Ryan Stiles, Joe Murray, and Jeff Davis. If you go to a site called Who's Live, is it anyway? <laughs> Who's Live anyway? Uh, oh my God. Thousand Oaks, Tucson, Mesa, East Lansing, Milwaukee, Salem, Eugene, Portland, 
Colorado Springs, Donvier, Saratoga, San Francisco. October 8th in San Francisco, we'll be going back. Please come and see us there. Uh, Alberta, Seattle, Marin, Santa Rosa, and Modesto. Uh, Turn this one up real fucking loud. You've been the smartest crowd in the world. I've been the smartest man in the world. Thank you very much for coming out. The every page of trivia is not your page. Maybe a bell that rings for you. Be a cool pop of bell. And if you have to buy bonds, make sure they're very bonds. I wish you nothing but peace. Good night.